Well, good morning, Grace. It is great to be here with you. Certainly a privilege for me. I think the last time I was here, uh, I was covering for Mark, who had been in a bike accident. I do hope that you all have invested in some bubble wrap for our brother Mark. <laughs> this adventurous spirit, you never know what state of physical impairment will be the result. We do love you, Mark. And I do appreciate your endorsement of the Stony Brook School, and I appreciate your partnership in the gospel at Stony Brook. Do pray for us. We have students from 25 different countries and 12 different states and all across Long Island. Our motto is character before career, and we define character as character molded in the image of Jesus Christ. It's hard, but worthy work, particularly in this culture, as we get the chance to influence the next generation for Christ. Well, I'm excited to open up God's Word with you today, and I would invite you to join me. I'm going to be reading from 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 through 17. And if you've ever wondered, if you've ever been in trouble, if you've ever felt difficulty or hardship or felt like it was overwhelming and that you didn't know what was going to happen or what to do, I think this passage will encourage you. Let's read together 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 through 17. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel... He took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this. And he called his servants and he said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he's in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open the eyes of the young man. O open the eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Let's pray one more time. Father, this is your word. Thanks be to you for giving it to us. I pray in this time that our hearts would be open to what you want to say to us, that our eyes may be able to see you, to see your son, 
and the love that you have for us. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, today I'd like to talk to you about sight. There's a heartwarming video captured on YouTube about a middle school student who was colorblind from birth. In his science class, he was presented with glasses specifically fitted for him that would enable him to see color for the first time. I'm not quite sure why they decided to do this and film such an intimate moment in front of his science class, but they did. Perhaps you've seen this video. The boy puts the glasses on and looks around, and after some awkward smiles and some giggles from classmates, he breaks down in tears of joy, wonder, and relief as he is overwhelmed by the ability to see color to see the world the way it really is versus through the lens of his disability. What a moment this must have been for him. Well, I want to propose to you today that most of us in this room, particularly the preacher, have a sight problem. And no, I'm not talking about physical sight, although for many of us, the evidence of our sight problems is incontrovertible. I'm talking about spiritual sight, the ability to see things as they really are. It's what Paul is talking about when he says to the Ephesians, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for those of us who believe. I want to examine three stories from Scripture, two from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, that have a familiar pattern in them that I am calling the experience trouble, panic, and then see the greater reality. Experience trouble, panic, and see the greater reality. Hoping that as we look at this pattern, as we look at these passages, our spiritual eyesight may be honed and we'd be able to better navigate the circumstances of our lives for God's glory and our good. Eugene Peterson, in his phenomenal commentary about the life of David called Leap Over a Wall, said the following, Reality is mostly made up of what we can't see. Reality is mostly made up of what we can't see. Let that sink in for a minute as we reflect on this passage from 2 Kings that we read. As we read it to set the stage, because of Israel's rampant unfaithfulness, judgment was coming upon them more and more through the Syrians. The Syrians were making significant incursions into Israelite territory, but as we saw, their king had a problem. Time and time again, his battle plans were foiled, so much that the king began to wonder, is there a spy in our midst? Who keeps going to this Israelite king and telling him what's, what we're about to do? And just as the crowd of lieutenants was getting nervous about which direction the king's wrath would go, one pipes up and says, it's none of us, king, but Elisha, the prophet in Israel, who tells the Israelite king the words you speak in your bedroom. So the king of Syria does what any despot would do, go and get Elisha. He sends his army out into the city of Dothan, where Elisha is staying. 
Dothan's a foothill city with mountains in a semicircle around it. And they're there to capture public enemy number one. Elisha and his servant are lodging in a home of some kind, and Elisha's servant wakes up, steps out of their lodging, and sees the Syrian army surrounding them. Either the servant is already aware that they're being hunted, or someone in the crowd in the army is shouting, Come out, Elisha, because this servant knows they're not there on a peacekeeping mission. The text captures the servant's response. Alas, my master, what shall we do? Said with an exclamation point, and that's basically the Hebrew for I'm freaking out. (laughs) He's panicking. The servant here is having a psychological and emotional response to trouble. Trouble. Very difficult and dangerous circumstances. The servant has every reason to believe that death by the Assyrian sword is a live option. The Syrian threat is real. It's not a hallucination. And this is an important point to clarify. Because as Christians, a whole lot of the trouble we face is entirely in our own head. What do I mean by that? Well, we catastrophize about what we think is going to happen with the encouragement of our formidable adversary who loves to stoke our anxiety, only to find that what we've been imagining never comes to pass. Maybe I'm the only one who does that. But I believe that much of our trouble is of this variety. And we need to quit doing that because reality is hard enough. And I think life since 2020 has gotten us much more in touch with that fact, that life is hard. And in many ways, it's very freeing to admit, is it not? Job 5.7 says, Yet man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. About six months ago, I was taking our dogs for a walk, and I'd just been through a pretty tough situation. I was complaining to God about it, and I started wondering why my life was so hard, and I noticed a serious disequilibrium in my spirit. I noticed I was trying to claw back to a time when I felt like I had everything under control and I was less burdened by what seemed to be unrelenting challenge. And then I had the thought, what if challenge is the norm? And times of rest and ease were gifts of God at the right time. As soon as I had that thought, I felt God say to me in my spirit, now you get it. I want to free you, believer, from the notion that somehow because your life is hard, there's something wrong with you. Or you just aren't savvy or skilled enough or rich enough or spiritual enough or whatever it is. You are a Christian on fallen planet Earth in an increasingly hostile time towards God's people. And your life will have much difficulty. If you're serious about following Jesus, your life will have much difficulty. And even if you're not, your life will have much difficulty. Jesus tells us as much when he says, in this life, you will have many troubles. Now, up to this point, I've preached a very depressing sermon. (laughs) Let's look back at our passage. Elisha doesn't panic. 
Although his response to the servant's question, what shall we do, might lead one to think that he failed basic math in school, he says, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. What's two of them in that house against an army? How does that work? But then Elisha prays that the eyes of his servant would be open so that he would see. God answers that prayer, and what does he see? He sees the hills full of angels and chariots in a number far greater than the Assyrian army. Elisha was right. And to be clear, this isn't a trance or a vision. These are real angels in real hills there to provide real help to God's people in need. This is the greater reality of the situation. The trouble you and I face is always subsumed, always subsumed by the greater reality of God's power and care, always. I have a small poster on my wall that my youngest daughter gave me during a particularly difficult time that reads, don't tell God how big the storm is, tell the storm how big your God is. What if despite the troubles we face in this life, we knew that we were surrounded by angel armies, would our perspective change? I think it would. Would we have more confidence and more of a willingness to do the hard things that God has called us to do? I think we would. And what I'm inviting us into here, and I think this passage is inviting us into here, is to see these angel armies that are surrounding us as we go through our experience in this life. A few things are worth noting here. What brings the change in sight for the young man, for the servant? What was it specifically? What did Elisha do? He prayed. He prayed. What brings about the subsequent delivery of Elisha and his servant? Prayer again. You see, the angel armies don't come down and physically fight the Assyrian army. You might think that's the way it would be in a battle scene like this. No, they are activated through prayer and their work in the unseen realm where principalities and powers are battling, just as we're told in Ephesians chapter 6. But even though we don't see it, it's no less real and no less effective. The scriptures tell us that after Elisha prays again, the Assyrian army is miraculously blinded and led out of Dothan right into the hands of the king of Israel. Prayer brings this about. And before we get too dismissive and say things like, well, if I were Elisha, my prayers would get answered too, let me say this. Remember in James chapter 5, Prayer is not only for the realm of prophets. James chapter 5 makes this point. James, speaking about another famous prophet, Elijah, states, Elijah was a man who had a nature just like ours. He's talking to us. And he prayed fervently that it would not rain on the earth for three years and six months, and it did not rain on the earth. Eye-opening prayer mountain-moving prayer is available to all of God's people. Let's take a look at this pattern through the lens of a story we're all familiar with, I would think, David and Goliath. 
prior to David and Goliath's encounter, weeks have passed with the Israelites and the Philistines, their nemesis at the time, standing on opposite sides of the valley of Elah, facing and taunting each other and preparing for all-out war. On the Philistine side is Goliath, the giant, who for 40 days would daily taunt the Israelites, I defy the ranks of Israel, send me a man to fight me. And if he beats me, we will serve you. But if I beat him, you will serve us. 2 Samuel 17.11 tells us what the net effect on leadership was. When Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were greatly afraid. Trouble followed by panic. Goliath was not the Wizard of Oz. He was no joke, a brutal warrior who twirled a 30-pound spear like a cheerleader's baton. He was dangerous, and everyone was stricken with Goliath panic. Goliath was all they could see, and his taunting words, all they could hear. In steps David to this environment. To date, he's not been with the, Israel, with the armies of Israel. He's been tending sheep far removed from the battle. But unlike the rest of the Israelites, when he sees Goliath and hears him taunting, he isn't afraid. He's incredulous and angry. Who is this person who dares to defy the armies of the living God? Don't you know who God is and the promises that he's made to his people, how he fights for us? Don't you remember our history and all the different ways in which God showed up and delivered us from our enemies? Do you see what David's doing? He's in touch with the greater reality. When everyone else was paralyzed with fear, what was it that made David see the situation differently? There were some mighty warriors on Israel's side. Was David just more courageous than they were? Experts would say David provided an outside and different perspective on the situation. Hogwash. What set David apart from the rest of Israel in this case was that he was so God-aware, so in touch with the veracity of God's word, so focused on the centrality of God in all things that he could not fathom the ways in which God was being disregarded. Eugene Peterson says it this way, in the Bethlehem hills and meadows, tending his father's sheep, David was immersed in the largeness and immediacy of God. He experienced God's strength in protecting the sheep in his fights with lions and bears. He had practiced the presence of God so thoroughly that God's word, which he couldn't literally hear, was far more real than the lion's roar, which he could hear. He had worshiped the majesty of God so continuously that God's love, which he couldn't see, was far more real to him than the bear's ferocity, which he could see. His praying and singing, his meditation and adoration had shaped his imagination in him that set each sheep and lamb and bear and lion into something large and vast and robust, God. His imagination was so thoroughly God-dominated that he couldn't believe what he was seeing and hearing when he walked into the valley of Allah. David's intimacy with God, cultivated over many years, gave him the ability to see the full picture. He didn't need to pray for it on the spot. He already had it. He knew God loved his people and would be with David in battle, 
And that is what gave him the confidence to say to Goliath, you come at me with sword and with a spear, with weapons I can see, (laughs) and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. I will strike you down that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel, and all this assembly know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And with that, he ran quickly towards Goliath, struck him down with a slingshot and smooth stone. David knew there were angel armies in those hills. He was intimately aware of the greater reality that was operative in the midst of trouble and panic. Our final story comes from the New Testament in the book of Luke. Diane read it for us earlier. Jesus in the boat with his disciples when a windstorm comes upon them. The scriptures are clear about the gravity of the situation. Luke 8.23 states, And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. Trouble followed by panic. The disciples, Master, Master, help! Exclamation point. Only this time, the greater reality was right there in them, with them, in the boat. Jesus demonstrated to them that he had complete power over nature. Omnipotence was in the boat. I don't know about you, but I've always been a little surprised by what Jesus does next when he asks them, where is your faith? Part of me expects him to say, oh, I know that was hard, but I'm here now, it's okay. Instead, there's an implied rebuke in that question. Don't you know who I am? I told you at the outset of this journey, we were going to go to the other side of the lake. My story doesn't end with us drowning in the middle of the lake. In essence, he's saying to them, let's remove panic from the pattern, shall we? And move from trouble to the greater reality of my presence in your life. What if he's saying that to you and me today? What would it look like for you and me to get to the place where when trouble or challenge comes, it doesn't undo us? It doesn't send us into a tailspin tailspin of complaining and doubting and bitterness. What if we were to eliminate panic and focus right away on the greater reality of God's protection and care? I want to make one acknowledgement and give you three truths. Notice I didn't say techniques. I want to give you three truths that if embraced will change your hearts and guide you to the greater reality of God's presence and care. First, the acknowledgement. Everything we experience in today's media and culture tells us there is no greater reality. God's opinion or perspective or possible presence is never discussed It's never on the table for consideration. His providence is never considered as a possible factor in the unfolding of world events. God has been thoroughly removed from our public discourse, our entertainment, and out of most schools and universities. It's why seeing reality is perhaps more difficult than ever before and requires focus on the part of God's people to keep him at the fore. And as a result, 
what it has seemed like in our world, particularly of late, is trouble, panic, no greater reality, and no hope. We are living in difficult times where trouble may be coming for God's people in ever-increasing measures. I don't say that to scare. I say that to prepare. Three truths. Three truths that we want to pound into our hearts because we've heard these truths before. You've heard them. You go to church. You've read the Bible. But we are forgetful people, and we need to daily preach the gospel to our own hearts. We need to daily remember these things because we forget the first we are not our own. We're not our own. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, 20 says, We are not our own. We are bought with a price. We do not belong to ourselves. How does this relate to not panicking when trouble comes? Hugely. When we think that our life belongs to us, we think things belong to us. Things like our reputation, our career, our money, our dreams, our comfort. And when these things get threatened, there is no small disquiet in our souls. Some of the greatest fear that we face is fear of loss. And if we believe it's ours, we'll defend it, even against God himself. And that, my friends, is a losing proposition. On the contrary, when we believe that God has bought us and truly owns us, we realize that we are here at the pleasure and will of another. There is great freedom in living in that reality. Number two, we are on a track. What do I mean by that? Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Do you know what the title of that good work is ultimately that God is doing? It is conformity to Jesus Christ. God is making you like Jesus. It's one of his chief projects. He's taking your personality, your emotional makeup, your Enneagram, your Myers-Briggs, and he's fashioning your character and inner person to be like his son. If you think about a block of marble, it's used to create a statue. The sculptor has a number of tools at his or her disposal. One is a sledgehammer. And he'll take that sledgehammer to knock off the big pieces of the marble to make it more usable. Other times, it's a scalpel to etch in those fine details that make the sculpture beautiful. God uses both on us to make us more like him. Sometimes that trouble is a sledgehammer. And it knocks off big pieces because you know what? A sledgehammer was necessary. Some of the sin patterns in our lives, they get in there pretty thick and pretty deep. And we've been told about them, but we don't really believe that they're that bad. And so sometimes we need a sledgehammer. But sometimes it's a scalpel. It's those fine details God is cutting into our lives. It still hurts a little bit, but not as hard as a sledgehammer. But both are used in the process called sanctification. And it is inexorable we're all going through it. And trouble is often an accelerant that God uses in that process. It's no small comfort to know, as a hymn writer says, that God will sanctify to us our deepest distress, 
somehow, some way, he will use this to make us more like him. Oh God, it hurts, but you're working on me and the fruit on the other side will be good. Lastly, God is as good as he says he is in his word. When trouble comes, how critical it is to know who is in the boat with you. The great deception from the beginning of mankind is the questioning of God's goodness. Did God really say? When trouble comes to us, the host of hell runs to it like flies to manure with the accusations and insinuations that God can't be trusted, that he's cruel, that he doesn't care, and surely he's abandoned you. What we need to do is study God's character as it's revealed in the scriptures. The disciples, they asked the right question after they saw Jesus still the storm. Who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? So we should also ask, who is this God who has saved us? What is he really like? Maybe you've seen some evidence of God's power and you think you know him. But may I encourage you to keep going? Early on in 2020, as challenges were beginning to ramp up significantly for me, I found myself ransacking the Bible for guidance and comfort. And I kept coming across a passage that I don't think that in all my years of reading the Bible I had ever seen before, at least not with the kind of focus that I had on it now. Do you know that when God is summarizing himself in scripture, when he's talking about himself, he says, I am merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's who I am. Those of us who grew up in an environment where there was a harsh view of God or a situation where his wrath was overemphasized, spend some time there. That's what God has said about himself. Look at Jesus in the Gospels. He describes himself as gentle and lowly of heart. This is the Lord of glory saying this about himself. Brennan Manning in his book, Ragamuffin Gospel, asked a question that I've never forgotten. He said, people were and are asking always and trying to figure out, is Jesus God-like? But the bigger question is, is God Jesus-like? Does he weep over the death of his friends? Is he kind to sinners? Does he run towards prodigals? The answer is a resounding yes. But don't confuse this gentleness and loving kindness for weakness. God is omnipotent in power and knows every star by name. He created the sea and everything in it, the sun, the moon, the planets, the dry land, and he did it all out of nothing. Understand that as it relates to your trouble, this is the best combination of all time. Because if you were only omnipotent and not loving, he might use his power against us. But if you were only loving and not powerful, he'd not be able to help us in our distress the way we need. But he is both. And it gets even better. God's favorite preposition is with. He's promised never to leave us or forsake us. He will see us through. He will not leave. And if you are in Christ here today, there is nothing you can do or not do that will make him love you any more or any less. There's no trouble that you could possibly face that will separate you from him. 
He is with you and for you. Don't you see how the right understanding of God's character makes all the difference in navigating trouble and to refuting the lies the enemy will throw at you in your distress? Pound it in. Meditate on it. But don't just study his words, study his deeds. A few years after Jesus stilled the storm, he would also be surrounded by soldiers coming to arrest him. And unlike Elisha, he willingly submitted to the capture. And when one of his followers tried to fend off the arrest with the sword, Jesus said, put your sword away. Don't you know I could call my father and at once have 12 legions of angels down here under my command? Don't you know I could call those angels out of the hills right away? But he didn't. And why didn't he? Why did he submit himself to this capture? Because he had to drink his father's cup. And what was that cup? That cup was a few hours, a day later, he would go to the cross and he would bear our sins, every single one that we've ever committed or will ever commit. And he took them on himself because God is holy and our sin separates us from God. But God loves us so much and can't be without us. Remember, his favorite preposition is with. He wanted to be with us. He did the only thing he could do to satisfy his justice, his wrath, and his desire to be with us. A sacrifice needed to be made, not lambs and goats and bulls, but the perfect sacrifice of his own son, whom he loved more than we could ever imagine. They'd been together for eternity in fellowship. But he willingly gave up his son to death so that, so that we could be in relationship with him. We could experience that closeness. We could experience that love. We could see angel armies in the hills protecting us as we go through this life. He's purchased for us a marvelous salvation, and he did it out of love for you and me. I want to encourage you. There is a greater reality than what we see with our own eyes. It's God himself caring for us, loving us, all the way into eternity. He will not leave you or forsake you. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. the strong and powerful name at which enemies flee. You've promised to be with us, God. We give you the praise. We pray, God, that we would not waste a day, a minute, a second, neglecting this great salvation. Help us, God, to see who you are, to really see you. That's what you want for us. Give us all wisdom and insight so that the eyes of our hearts may be open to see you afresh today. Whether we've been walking with you for a long time or we're new to the faith, God, show yourself to us. We need you. And we pray that our conduct and our thoughts and everything we do brings you honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.